All right, we'll grab those Bibles and open up to Revelation. It's easy to find. It's the last book. If you've hit the concordance and the maps, you've gone too far. So just go to Revelation. Uh, We're in chapter 8 and chapter 9 today. So trying to hit two chapters together. Uh, We've taken a couple weeks off in our series through this book for good reason. So let me bring you back to speed on what's going on in Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is a message from God to his people. Uh, it comes through the Apostle John, and John shares this message with us because God wants to change the way that we live now. He's not just telling us information about the future. He wants to change the way that we live based on what he's told us. The book begins with a couple, uh, seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches were specific, historic, geographical, located churches, but they're also stand-ins for all churches for all time. And so when Jesus addresses to them specific and common problems that churches face, we're supposed to listen because he's telling us the things that we need to know, the things we need to repent of in order to be ready for what is coming. Chapters 2 and 3, and then chapter 4, he begins to tell us what's coming. And in chapter 4, John is taken in a vision to heaven. And the first thing that John sees is God seated on his throne because God wants John and us to know that God is on his throne. That no matter what happens, God is in control. There is nothing to fear if you are one of his people. And then we see in God's hand this scroll. And the scroll represents the story of the end of human history. And we're very excited to see what this scroll says. Everyone's very excited, but the problem is there's no one worthy to open the scroll except the lamb who was slain, Jesus. So Jesus comes and he takes the scroll and he begins to open the scroll. There's seven seals on the scroll and he opens them one after another. And in chapter 6, he opens the first four seals and he releases on the earth war and famine and violence and death. What we saw is that those are the birth pains of the new creation. God is at work. He's at work to bring about a new creation. He's going to birth a new world, a world that's free from sin and from sorrow and death. But before you can have a baby, you've got to go through labor. And so there's these contractions, and the contractions hurt. So war and violence and famine and death, the things that we see in the world today, are birth pains of the new creation. The contractions have already begun, and because they hurt... We cry out with all the saints, how long, O Lord? And when Jesus opens the fifth seal, the saints cry out, how long, O Lord, before this is over? And God says, just a little while. Then he opens the sixth seal, and there's judgment. The wrath of the Lamb falls on all evildoers. After this comes a pause between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And the pause is given to us so that we don't miss the mercy of God. There's a lot of judgment in Revelation, and so it's easy to miss the mercy of God. And so chapter 7 is here to show us that God shows mercy. He doesn't destroy everyone. He seals some. He protects some from the judgment, from the wrath of the Lamb. And it's not just a few people he seals. It's an untold, uh, numberless multitude from every tribe and tongue and language. Every person who's put their faith in Jesus and been forgiven of their sins and washed in the blood of the Lamb, is spared from the wrath of God. 
And instead, instead of experiencing the wrath of the Lamb, you get the Lamb as your shepherd. And God comes and wipes away every tear from your eyes. And that's where we ended up last week. Or not last week, the last time we talked about this. Three weeks ago. At the end of chapter 7, God wiping away the tears from the eyes of his people. And today we pick it up in chapter 8 where Jesus is going to open the seventh seal. But that's not going to be the end. It's the end of that contraction, but there's another one coming. Because God has more he wants us to see and understand about what's to come. So we're going to go through chapters 8 and 9 today because these cover the seventh seal and the first six trumpet judgments. It's a lot of text. And so I'm not going to start off by just reading the whole thing for us. We'll read it in chunks as we go through, and I'll talk about it a bit by bit. Um, And in the interest of time, because there's one section I want to focus on. So in the interest of time, I'm probably going to go a little faster through some things than you might want me to. That'd be a nice change of pace, wouldn't it? Um, But if you have questions and you say, well, you didn't talk about this, write the questions down, put them in the box in the back. I'll try to answer those as best I can. Uh, but I want to get through because there is a part on this, this passage. You know, there, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of scary things in this passage. There's lots of confusing things. But there's one part in particular that is more confusing and more scary than any of the rest. And so I want to spend most of our time there to make sure we understand it. If you want to try to guess which part that is, go ahead. You'll find out. But let's start then. So we're going to start in chapter 8. We'll just march right through bit by bit, and we start with the seventh seal. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets who were, were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with, the golden, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay. So after the Lamb opens the seventh seal, it says there's silence in heaven for half an hour. This is like the break in between contractions. You get a chance to catch your breath before the next wave starts. And during that break, something important happens. The prayers of God's people, which are symbolically represented as burning incense, the prayers of God's people come before the throne. God hears his people's prayers. And it doesn't tell us here what specifically people were praying for. But it's probably the same prayers we heard the previous chapter where the saints were saying, How long, O Lord? How long until you judge the world? How long until evil is taken care of? How long until you make things right? So God hears these prayers. And he responds with the trumpet judgments. Okay, so he gives seven trumpets to seven angels, and now they begin to blow them one after another. So let's look at the first trumpet, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpets, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. It says the first trumpet. 
The big picture, I think, is pretty clear. This is a judgment on the vegetation of the earth. You see a third of the trees, a third of the earth, and all the grass is burned up. I said there's, there's confusing parts in this passage. There's scary parts. Certainly there's some confusion here. So what, you know, what does it mean for hail and fire to be mixed with blood? Um, when it says a third of the earth is burned up, does it mean like the earth is divided into thirds and one third is burned up? Or is it, you know, all told a third of the earth is burned up, like a portion here, a portion there, a portion there? I, I don't know. So there's some confusion, but it's clear that this is a scary picture. A third of the earth burned up. All the green grass. What would it mean for our planet if a third of the trees were destroyed? What would it mean if all the grass was destroyed? It would be devastating. Okay, that's the point. This is devastating. And that's just the first trumpet. The second trumpet, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, so again, big picture, clear enough. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea creatures are destroyed. A third of the ships are destroyed. There's still plenty of opportunity for questions, confusion. I mean, what, what is this great mountain burning with fire? Is this a meteor? Is this a volcano? How would that turn the sea to blood? You know, is that, some people think is that a reference to lava, maybe? Is there blood, literal blood? How do you turn just a third of the sea into blood? Like when I put a drop of food coloring in a glass of water, the whole water changes color, right? You know, it'd be like, oh, stop at a third. <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. Is this, is this symbolic of great destruction, or should we literally expect a flaming mountain that makes a third of the sea into blood? Okay, so there's questions. But it's clear enough, but again, this is a scary image especially for people who lived around the Mediterranean Sea, like the people who received this letter. The Mediterranean Sea was lifeblood for them. It was their supermarket. It was their highway. It's how stuff got traded. It's where all the food came from. And to hear, this is going to be wiped out, a third of it destroyed. The third trumpet. Verse 10, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Okay, it seems like we're kind of progressively getting more confusing here, but we know what's clear is a third of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. That's the big point. How that happens is a little more confusing. We've got this giant star that falls from heaven, Named Wormwood. Okay, now, Wormwood is the name of a plant, a bitter plant. So they're saying this, this star is a bitter plant, right? And when the star falls, it falls in a third of the springs and rivers and makes them bitter. And then even that's a little confusing. How does one, I guess, meteor fall on a third of the rivers of the earth? I don't know how that works. Uh, then the waters become bitter. I don't know why a meteor would make waters bitter. And then the people die. I don't know why people would die from drinking bitter water. You'd think they'd just, you know, not like it. Um, so there's some confusion here. But again, the big picture is clear. There's a scary thing that's going to affect a third of the fresh water. I mean, how bad would that be? You could just 
What if all the fresh water in the United States just became undrinkable and you had to go to either Mexico or Canada to get a glass of water? Crazy. Turmoil. So this is big stuff. The fourth angel blew his trumpets in verse 12. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. And I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So now we're getting into the cosmic stuff, right? The sun, moon, and stars. And here again, some, some confusion, but it seems to be saying that for a third of the daytime, there will be no light, and a third of the nighttime, there will be no light. So every day, you're going to have two periods of complete and utter darkness where there's no light in the morning, no light in the evening. It may also, conversely, be saying that just everything will be dimmed by about a third, Again, I don't know how that works. Like, what, what would cause the sun, the moon, and the stars to all start acting like an old light bulb, like flickering on and off and just, you know, on the edge of going out? How do we make sense of that literally? Again, should we take it symbolically of just a really great, huge destruction? But even if it is just a symbol, it's a symbol of something really bad. It's a scary symbol. Everything depends on the sun. Right? Everything depends on the sun. If there is no sun, there is no life. And so to begin to lose the sun, you're losing everything. So all of these first four judgment, uh, these trumpet judgments are very scary. They are judgments on the very things that make life possible on this planet. A third of the plants destroyed. A third of the sea creatures destroyed. A third of the fl- fresh water undrinkable, and the sun, moon, and stars going out. And yet, did you catch 13, verse 13, where it says you, you really haven't seen anything yet? All right, it says, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So it keeps getting worse. And here we get to the fifth trumpet. It's a little bit longer, chapter 9, I'll read verses 1 through 12. And I saw the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit 
His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. We all got that one right, so we'll just move on. Um, okay, so this trumpet judgment is also confusing and scary. It's not the most confusing or scary, so I'll be relatively brief. But it starts with the star falling to earth, right? And then the star is given a key, so it must not be a literal star we're talking about because you generally don't give keys to stars. So it's probably an angel, likely a fallen angel with this description of falling from heaven to earth. And this angel opens up the bottomless pit or the abyss, which represents the dwelling place of evil and the demonic. And out of this pit, after he opens it, comes a bunch of locusts. Now, locusts are actually a very common biblical plague. Right? It's a way that God brings judgment on people. If you remember in the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, there's ten plagues. Right? I think you kids just study this in Sunday school. Right? There's ten plagues, and one of the plagues is locust, number eight. And what happens with locusts is these bugs come in, they eat all your stuff, and then they leave you to starve. That's what's bad about locusts. Same thing happens in the prophet Joel. You could read that book. That's all about locusts. Giant swarm of locusts comes, eats everything, uh, leaves them with nothing, and they starve. Okay, that's what the plague is. But here, these locusts don't do that. It's explicitly said in verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So these locusts don't hurt you indirectly by eating your stuff. They hurt you directly by attacking you, by apparently stinging you and tormenting you. Now, there's some really good news in verse 4. Did you catch that? It says they're not supposed to harm the grass of the earth or the the plants, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Okay, So, So Christian, these demon scorpion locusts, cannot hurt you. They are forbidden from hurting you. This is a reference back to chapter 7, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where God sealed his people. And you remember sealing. I gave the illustration of it's like uh, when the quarterback on a football team in, in practice wears a special jersey, and everybody on the team knows you can't hit that guy, because if you do, you get in big trouble, right? That jersey protects him and marks him out as separate. God seals his people, and part of the benefit of that we see now is that seal protects you from the wrath of God. As it's poured out on the people of the earth, it doesn't affect you. But to those who can be affected by the scorpions, it's going to be terrible. It says in verse 6, they'll want to die, but they can't. And then in verse 7, John gives us a series of detailed descriptions of these things that kind of works in the opposite way that descriptions usually work. Usually the more detail you get, the more things make sense. Right? Like if I were to, to say to you, I saw an animal the other day. It had four legs. It was about three feet tall, had a short black coat, had a long tongue, um, kind of long nose, had an expression on its face, very eager to please. You would know that it is a Dog, black Labrador, in fact, yes. Right? The more description, more detail you get, the more the picture narrows down. You think, okay, I know what you're talking about. 
This is like the opposite. The more detail you get, the more you think, I have absolutely no category for whatever you are talking about. Okay, locust. Yeah, I know what a locust is. Uh, looks like a horse. Has a human face. With women's hair and lion's teeth. What is this? We don't know. We don't know. It's clearly symbolic of something. But no one really knows what it is. But what we know, the important thing that we have to know is that this is terrible. It is horrible. And, and we know it's terrible because it's led by Satan himself. Verse 11, it said that it's led by this angel called Abaddon or Apollyon. Those are both words that mean destroyer. Okay, synonyms for Satan. And so we know if he's in charge of this demon, scorpion, locust army, that it's bad. But it isn't the worst thing. The sixth trumpet. Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breast, breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. That's the sixth trumpet. Four angels are released to kill a third of mankind. But it, um, and these angels probably are fallen angels, again, like the one at the beginning of the chapter. But it's not just the angels that are going around killing a third of mankind. They've got this giant demonic army of horses. And it's huge. Verse 16, it said, The number was twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's 200 million. Okay. You can pull out your calculator and check me if you want. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. 200 million horsemen. And they go out and kill a third of the earth's population, which at present day would be about 2.5 billion people. And these aren't ordinary horses. They are lion-headed, snake-tailed, fire-breathing demon horses. There's so many of them that if you line them up in a row a mile wide, it would be 85 miles long. The Roman army at that time was 200,000 people. So this is over 1,000 times bigger than the greatest fighting force on earth at that time. And they are going out to kill a third of the earth. Okay, now I'm, you can go ahead and ask, but I'm as confused as you are as to what these fire-breathing demon horses represent, other than the fact that they represent something terrible, a terrible judgment of God on the earth. So is this it? Is this the scariest, most confusing thing in a chapter full of scary, confusing things? Actually, no, I think the scariest, most confusing thing in this chapter are the last two verses, the refusal to repent. As the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons 
and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I think this is the most confusing part of this passage. And you're probably thinking, I don't know, Dan, there's other confusing things. Like, seems pretty straightforward. They didn't repent. I get it. And, and I'm with you. I mean, I get that, I get the fact they didn't repent. But what is absolutely astonishing and confusing is how did they not repent? I mean, when we read the chapters, there should be a lot of questions. <laughs> what is this? What is this? I don't understand this. Right? But the biggest question I think that we're supposed to have as we read these two chapters, we get to the end and we say, how do they not repent? The world has just experienced unprecedented destruction. A third of the plants destroyed. A third of the sea life destroyed. A third of fresh water, undrinkable. A third of the sun, moon, and stars light just gone. Five months of unspeakable torment, and then a third of Earth's population killed. And what's more, as these people would look around, they would see clearly there are two types of people. There are the Christians who seem to be escaping all of this wrath, and there's the non-Christians who are receiving it. And it seems like the obvious response would be, I want to be in the group of people who are not experiencing the bad stuff. I mean, in sports, when a team starts to do well, everybody jumps on the bandwagon, right? How many Golden State Warriors fans here today, right? How many of you were big fans of Golden State 10 years ago? Did you even know they had a team in San Francisco? All right? Everybody loves the Cubs. Great year this year. We started off, you know, they're great. We're Cubs fans, right? We all jump on the bandwagon. Nobody's jumping on the Jesus bandwagon. Why not? More than anything else in this passage, the stunning lack of repentance makes no sense. And yet, it is how the human heart works all the time. All the time. Not just at the end times, but all the time. Many people, even today, fail to repent even though it is the obvious right choice. And I think there's two big reasons we do this. The first is we don't think we need to repent. We don't think we need to repent. Did you notice in verse 20 how these people are described? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. And of course, that's obvious, right? I mean, they're the, the ones who are killed can't repent. So what are you left with? The ones who were not killed. Um, but when you think about who these people are, these are the survivors Right? So a third of uh, the, the, the plants are gone, a third of the fish, a third of the water, the sun, a third of the people on the earth have died, but these people survived it all. They're still alive. They're the survivors. Now the whole reason why God is allowing survivors is to show his mercy, to allow opportunities to repent. Later on in the book, God will finally act and destroy the whole world. But at this point, he does a third. Why? Because he wants to give people a chance to repent. And yet the survivors seem to be drawing the exact opposite lesson, namely, I didn't get killed, therefore I don't need to repent. Right? The bad stuff that happened must have happened to them because they were worse people than me. 
I must be okay because I made it. This comes up in Luke 13, in a conversation some people were having with Jesus. Um, They were actually talking to him about some recent disasters that had happened. In one of them, Pilate, the the governor, had killed some people. Uh, In another one, a big tower had fallen on some people and killed them. So in Luke 13, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate killed them and actually offered them with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what were they thinking? They were thinking the reason these bad things happened to other people is because these other people must have deserved it. The tower didn't fall on me. I must be okay. But Jesus says, no, these things were given as a warning to you that you might stop and consider the brevity of your own life and the sinfulness of your own sin and recognize that unless you too repent, you will also perish. And that's what the survivors of these trumpet judgments should have been doing. They should have been saying the final judgment is here. I need to repent of my sin before it's too late. But instead they were saying, whew, dodged a bullet. Guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Now listen, we have not experienced anything like whatever is recorded in these chapters. We have never experienced natural disasters on this scale, but we have experienced natural disasters and they happen all the time. How do you respond when you hear of a tsunami that kills thousands of people you have a moment of concern, maybe donate five bucks to the Red Cross and then say, glad it wasn't me, and continue with your life as if nothing had happened? How do you respond when you hear of earthquakes and mudslides and tornadoes and natural disasters around the world where people are killed? Do you say, they must have been worse than me? doesn't affect my life. Look, one of the reasons why those things exist is to get the attention of those who survive. That we would hear the words of Jesus, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. We can't pretend that we don't need repentance. The other reason why we fail to repent, though, is we just don't want to. So we think we don't need it, but then even if we acknowledge we need it, we just don't want to. Because repentance means surrendering control of your life to God. Repentance means saying no to sin. Repentance means making a change. Uh, And I probably should have done this earlier, but talk about repentance. What is repentance? (laughs) Repentance is a U-turn. It's my favorite illustration of it. I think it, it gets it really well. So you turn says, I've been going this way. I need to stop and turn around and go the other way. I had to repent last Sunday. I was going to my uh, nephew's graduation party in Bloomington Normal. And we're driving on Interstate 74. 
And we get to the intersection, or the, the part where the interstate breaks, and part of it goes to 55 south, and part of it goes to 55 north. And Jen had, and I had this little conversation where Jen says, do you think you should go left? I was like, no, I think I should go right. And I ended up going right to Interstate uh, 55 South, but I needed to go to 55 North. So what did I have to do? I had to repent. Right? Pull into the first off-ramp, turn around, and go back the other direction. I didn't want to go to St. Louis. I wanted to go to a graduation party. That's what repentance is. It's turning around. It's saying, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to stop and go in the other direction. And it's relatively easy to do in a car because all you have to do is admit that you went the wrong way. It's harder to do in life because you have to admit that your whole approach to life is wrong. That's what these guys don't want to do. In verse 20, it says, uh, they would not give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. To repent means for them, giving up the gods they'd made for themselves. And sure, we look at, they're just statues, right? What's so hard about that? They're just gold and silver and bronze. But to them, it was their way of life. It was what they worshipped. It was the most important thing. It's how they made sense of the world. And repentance meant giving that up to follow God. And they just couldn't do it. It's the same for us today. We probably, probably in your house, you don't have little figurines or statues that you bow down to and literally worship. But we all build our lives and derive our meaning from other things like our family or our career or money or romance. And whether we call them gods or not, we treat them as gods. We make them the most important thing in our lives. And to repent is to renounce those things and say God is more important than that. And it's hard to do. It's hard to admit that your whole way of life is wrong. You know, even when I was driving to normal, uh, took the wrong turn, it was hard for me to, to admit that I'd made a wrong turn. And it was easier to say, hey, I just thought we'd take the scenic route. Um, or, you know, it's important to be fashionably late to parties like this. It can be hard to admit that you're wrong. How much harder to admit that the very things you've built your life on, the things you've worshipped, are worthless. We don't repent because we don't want to. And they knew. They knew if they repented, they'd have to give control of their lives to God. They'd have to stop murdering and, and witchcraft and sexual immorality and their thefts. And you know, if you surrender to God... He's going to have things to say about how you use your money. He's going to have things to say about how you pursue your career, about what you do in your bedroom, about forgiving your enemies. And you just don't want to do that. So it's easier not to repent. And that's what makes this, in addition to the most confusing part of the passage today, the scariest part of the passage. Because, yeah, there's scary stuff in this passage, no doubt about it, crazy, wild, scary stuff. But the scariest thing to me is that the human heart can get so hard towards God that you don't even want to repent. That's what happens. 
And the longer you put it off, the harder it gets. Repentance is just like dieting. The favorite day to do it is tomorrow. I'll repent tomorrow. I'll quit smoking tomorrow. <laughs> you know, just put it off until tomorrow. I'll diet tomorrow. It's always harder to repent tomorrow than it is today. When I was driving to Bloomington, it was easy to repent at the first exit. It only took about an extra five minutes. Would have gotten harder if I went all the way to St. Louis before I decided I need to turn around. And that's the way it is with the human heart. The, harder, the longer we go, the more we put it off, the harder it is for us to repent. Now, to be clear, it's not harder for God to forgive, right? It doesn't get harder for God to forgive. He is always infinitely available and ready to forgive us no matter what we've done. But it gets harder for us to repent the longer we go in sin. And that's why the Bible doesn't say tomorrow is the day of salvation. The Bible says today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. And so as I close, I speak to Christians and non-Christians alike. If you're not a Christian, the message from this passage is clear. You need to repent. It's not fun to preach judgment. But you need to know. As much as you try to ignore it, the end is coming, either of the world or of your life. The end is coming. And in the end, you'll stand before God, and the only thing that matters is, did you repent? Did you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus? That's all that matters. But in that day, it will be too late. Today is a day of repentance. And for Christians, we need to repent too. We don't have to fear the wrath of God, right? That's, that's clear. Praise the Lord. We're sealed. We're protected. But the sin that we commit still has destructive effects in our lives and the lives of other people. And so when we become aware of sin in our lives, we need to repent right away. Don't delay repentance. You know, repentance shouldn't be like starting a diet. It's not for tomorrow. It's more like voting in Chicago. Do it early and often, Right? The Christian life is about continual repentance all the time. So don't say, I know this is wrong. I know God will forgive me. I'm just going to do it a few more days. That's crazy talk. Repent today. Take the first exit you can and get back on the right road. There is a lot of scary stuff in this passage. But the scariest is this, that some people choose not to repent. Don't let it be you.